This is The Next Shift with Sunil Badami on Disrupt Radio. Working from home to hybrid workplaces. Finding the right side hustle or meaning in what you do. How to work with AI before it takes your job. Work is changing faster every day and the future of work is already here. How do you navigate office politics via Zoom? How important is diversity when everyone's working from home? And how can you manage a bad boss or that Gen Z intern? The Next Shift with Sunil Badami. We challenge and inspire you to adapt, evolve and become an unstoppable force. I'm Sunil Badami. I've had more jobs than I've had haircuts, including as a journalist, broadcaster, academic and researcher specialising in the future of work. And together we'll explore the future of work today and how you can shift up to the next level, wherever you work, whatever you do. Welcome to The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. Let's face it. Since the pandemic, working from home has become a big part of our working lives. And increasingly, many of us want to keep doing just that, with 70% of workers saying that they want to keep working from home and 50% saying they'd rather quit than return to the office full time in a recent Employment Hero survey. But now more and more bosses from Elon Musk to Commonwealth Bank CEO Matt Komen are saying they want everyone to come back to the office for important functions like collaboration. With some employers like major financial company FNZ threatening its entire workforce with the sack if they didn't come back to work. So how can managers get everyone back in the office? Or as many are increasingly saying, should they even... Today on The Next Shift, we'll find out why some bosses want everyone back in the office and how to get them back without threats or tears. Well, you've probably heard this guy on Disrupt Radio's Enterprise Breakfast this morning with Libby Gore, and you'll have seen him on Gruen on the ABC or Sunrise on the Seven Network as well. Adam Ferrier is a consumer psychologist and founder of award-winning creative agency Thinkabell, currently ranked Australia's number one agency and number two in the world. He's one of Australia's best-known and most acclaimed creative strategists, the author of two books and the creator of a board game. And he stirred the possum a bit with two columns in Media Industry Bible Mumbrella about why he reckons everyone should go back to the office and what the consequences of working from home might really mean. Adam Ferrier from Thinkabell and from Enterprise Breakfast on our very own Disrupt Radio. Welcome to the show. Woohoo, thank you. Nice to be here. So, Adam, it's your first week in the studio with Libby on Enterprise Breakfast. How's it been going? It's been going fantastically. We're having a ball and Libby's amazing to work with and we're enjoying the discussion. But ultimately, it depends on we resonating with listeners or it's up to them. It's amazing, isn't it? Because I have to tell you, I was so surprised to hear Bob Geldof on the first show last week because yeah. I yeah. thought he didn't like Mondays. <laughs> Very funny. Um, <laughs> he was, he, apparently he was terrible. But on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, man, he knocked it out of the ballpark. I wonder how many times he's heard that. 
on Monday. Exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. So, Adam. Before we begin, I have to ask you, what is a consumer psychologist and how did you become one? So I studied commerce and psychology. At school, I was always interested in money and I used to trade shares. There was only one landline in the school, so every lunchtime I used to race to the landline, trade shares all lunchtime, hang up the phone. Just, I spoke to my stockbroker, hang up the phone and go back to class. And I was always known as the weird kind of rich guy and so I wanted to be, and then I was failing school tutor said why don't you become a consumer psychologist I thought gee that's perfect so I studied psychology and commerce got a degree in clinical psychology got registered as a psychologist and then basically self-labeled myself as a consumer psychologist so in Australia it's not a, a particular qualification but as a registered psychologist I can call myself a dog psychologist or a chicken psychologist or a consumer psychologist but it had to be one of those three so what does a consumer psychologist do? It looks at the interrelationship between brands and people and how we make decisions in a kind of a, in a branded consumer world. I have to say your careers advisor at school was pretty on the ball, although mine always said that I'd end up in prison and I actually ended up working for the prisons. Yeah. So I guess he was right in the end. That's the same story. My mum used to always say, as long as I didn't end up in prison or on drugs... She'd done a job. And then I got it. My first ever job was as a psychologist in the prison system for about five years. And then she went around telling people she had failed as a mother. <laughs> my Indian mother still thinks, sadly, I'm not a dermatologist. Yeah. or you, Yeah. There must be high pressures on you, I'd imagine. I know. It really gets under my skin. <laughs> I'm leaving that alone, my friend. <laughs> If only you could see eyebrows going up over someone's forehead on the radio. Now, a lot of leaders and managers lately have been calling for people to get back into the office. Why do you think that is? It's a really interesting one, right? Flexible working conditions are here to stay and everyone's had a good dose of working from home and being able to work in their pyjamas. I'm not wearing any pants at the moment. I'm enjoying that. But I think for businesses there is something about getting a group of people together as we touched on before getting them aligned on a common goal and making them feel like they're a part of something and i think just that is harder in a diffused work environment where everyone's working for themselves than it is if you're all in a collective kind of environment together for periods of time so i think from an employer perspective it's really important to get people back into the office as much as possible Elon Musk recently came out and said that working from home was immoral, given that only some workers get to do it, while many others, doctors, truckies, childcare workers, firemen, nurses, they all have to turn up to work. What do you reckon? Is it immoral to work from home, and can we even apply morality to it? I don't know. The increasing dickification of Elon Musk is fascinating, isn't it? Like, he's gone from an absolute hero to zero over the course of about two years really quickly. But, and he also said he supports flexible working conditions as long as you spend the first 40 hours a week in the office. Then after that, it's up to you what, where you choose to spend your time. However, again, I do think there, I don't think it's immoral, obviously, but I think it's important that people do go to the employer, that two people go to the office as much as they can. For the employee, I reckon it's really interesting because I think it's easier a lot of the time to stay home. But I do think there's a benefit. I think ease and efficiency sometimes 
slowly destroy the soul. And I think if we do what's easiest and most efficient for us, then we'll sit in a chair, we'll have all of our food delivered to us, we won't leave the room, we'll interact with everyone through the internet, then we'll go to sleep. We don't even need to get out of a bed. We can just do all of that from the from our bed. And it's heavy. I don't know if you've seen the movie Wally, which a cartoon released in 2012, but spoke about this kind of future where everything is so easy. We've become fatter and less able to cope with the world because everything is just brought to us. And so if you don't have to get out of your house, fight with people on public transport, have stilted weird conversations in the lift, have to learn how to interact awkwardly with other people in the office environment, then you're going to start to decay, I think, as a human. And so I reckon for employees, I reckon even though it might be harder, I think it's very important that we keep on pushing ourselves to have to go through uncomfortable situations and and contribute as much as we can literally outside the home. Yeah, but Adam, I know that when I worked full-time in an office and I was in at 8.30 and often leaving home at about, leaving work at about 6, 6.30 and rushing home and trying to eat something or cook something, I never had time to go to the gym. Now that I can work flexibly, it means I can go to the gym, I can... I'm not wasting hours on a commute there and back and I can get a lot more done. In fact, studies have shown that people who work from home are actually working more and longer hours than they would if they were commuting or going into the office. Yeah, we can't have your cake and eat it both ways. If your productivity, I think the productivity claims now saying that it's better to go into the office more than if you stay at home full time in most jobs, it's, your productivity is decreasing, but it just depends on how you cut it. So it's a bit pointless having that discussion. I, I, your example is a good one, and being able to get to the gym and doing all of those kind of things and not having to get stuck in peak hour. And like I say, flexible working conditions are here to stay, and having some form of flexibility to avoid peak hour if you like or make sure you can stay home a morning a week or whatever and go to the gym or do what you need to do or even stay home a couple of days a week looking after the kids or whatever. All of that is good. I'm not denying any of that. But I am saying when you can go to the office, go to the bloody office. But who does it benefit in terms of going back to the office? Benefits everyone. This is the whole point, right? It might be harder for you as an individual, but it benefits everybody because every single individual, if you ask them if I'd rather stay home today, most of them may well say yes. But it's not necessarily in that person's best interest to stay home all day, every day. It's in that that person's best interest to somehow, metaphorically, fight the traffic, fight the awkward conversation on lift, get into the office, have those awkward conversations and do your thing. You're really selling it to me, Adam, yeah. What I'm saying is but by through that hardship and through that kind of pushing through all of those kind of messiness of life, we're learning and we're growing and, and I think that's, important. So I think that's important for the organisation. I also think it's important for the individual. And I think ultimately as well, especially in our industry, magic kind of happens through those incidental moments where you're talking to each other and bouncing ideas around and so on. I get the idea about bouncing ideas around and things like that in a workplace if you're in a team and you're trying to come up with some creative ideas. But I have to ask you though, you're suggesting, at least as far as I'm hearing it, that 
the only place we're going to have any kind of awkward conversations is going to be on public transport or getting to work, whereas there's always going to be opportunities to have weird conversations or interactions, whether they're in the gym or the supermarket. Man, I've got two kids, teenage kids. I have awkward conversations all the time. Yeah, that's fantastic. But what I, if you spend your whole day on, on Zoom calls or if you spend your whole day coding on a computer and you don't have any interaction with anybody else at work, then that's creating a one that's creating an efficiency pipe that I think leads to not having to deal with any kind of messiness outside of that. And so the more kind of messiness you need to deal with, I think the more you grow. And I think I come back to this whole kind of thing of if we're living such comfortable lives at the moment, our lives are coming increasingly more and more comfortable. And with that, our ability to cope and our ability to grow and our ability to change is decreasing. We're becoming fatter. We're becoming more anxious. We're becoming more depressed because our circle of comfort is decreasing more and more. I do agree with you that... Sorry, can I ask, am I talking shit or is this making sense? Like, I, I really want to really nail this point that... Just because it's comfortable, just because it's easy, doesn't mean it's good for us as an individual and as a collective. Look, I think that there are interesting ideas around this, right? So there was a really interesting documentary a few years ago called The Rise of the Killer Robots. And it talked about how not that necessarily robots would take our jobs or even that they would take over the world, but actually that the more we interacted with AI, we would diminish our humanity because when we interact with other people in real life, we are more empathetic and more attuned to the potential non-verbal communication that we have as human beings by looking at each other's faces and stuff. And generally, when we interact with robots or chatbots or even Siri or Alexa, I can see that in the difference between the way that my 81-year-old mother and my teenage kids, when they were younger, would interact with Siri, right? So my mum would say, oh, Siri, can you please tell me what the weather is today? Thank you very much. Whereas my kids would go, Siri, why are you such an idiot? And of course, that means that the more and more that we interact with artificial entities and disregard them, then we're more likely to potentially interact in the same way with other people, with real people, right? And dehumanise them and effectively dehumanise ourselves. But having said that, I've worked from home as a freelancer for 25 years and I actually find when I go into an office that it is extremely distracting. I don't know how it works at Thinkerbell. Do people wear noise-cancelling headphones? But this is one of the most awkward, weird conversations I've ever had. I feel like I'm talking to a computer. <laughs> I haven't spoken to a sex robot, Adam, but <laughs> we'd need to reboot, wouldn't we? <laughs> any, if you look at any science fiction, just about any science fiction movie puts us all in the future wearing spandex, all walking in unison, all with the same haircut and all in a dehumanised state. There's this kind of uniformity there or something like that. Like on, we're walking on, we don't have to walk, we're on conveyor belts. We're kind of all, it's all laid out for us. And I think there's this kind of constant fight against losing our sense of humanity. And I reckon ease and efficiency are the main kind of culprits of that. 
But as I say, I've worked from home for 25 years by necessity because I'm a freelancer. And I think it hasn't necessarily been that working from home has necessarily been easier for me because I've still had to do big things. Like I've still had to do hard jobs on short deadlines. So it's still been hard for me, even though I've worked from home. So We need to do a controlled twin study, don't we? We need to work out what your life was like if you'd been in the office. It's, it's really interesting because I did actually work in an agency. I got my first job in an office in 20 years at an agency and I said to them I had to work, I could only work four days a week because I was so unused to it. And in the end I found that I to do a lot of the work that I was doing, I just had to do it from home because it was me writing stuff or whatever. When I was in the office, it was great. I was talking to lots of people and there was a lot happening, but I didn't actually get a lot done. And yeah, we have, it's interesting. We have a few people like that on the fringes of our agency who have got special equipment they need and so forth. And they're a specialist in a certain part of the business. And they have all of their setup at home. And so, therefore, because they have all of their setup at home, it's harder than to be, to operate efficiently within the working environment. And so, therefore, they spend time at home. And I'm not saying it's not completely black or white, is it? There's obviously benefits on both sides. But again, if it's easier to spend time at home, if you've got all your equipment set up at home, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for you or for the people you're working with for you to spend all your time there. Maybe the right thing for you to do was to take the plunge and go on day one and go, I'm hiring, I'm hiring a truck, we're moving up my whole studio into the into the office. Now, I'm not saying that you ha- that definitely was the case or whatever. I'm not playing with the idea of just because it was easy for you to get shit done at home doesn't make it right. This is The Next Shift with Sunil Badami on Disrupt Radio. Okay, so do you at Thinkabell expect staff to be in the office for a particular amount of time or a particular number of days like Elon Musk? We think the onus is on the leaders of the business to create an environment that people want to come in. So So how do you create that environment? We create it, I think there's probably two, two or three kind of macro narratives there. Number one narrative would be fun, so we would have each office has got a very long bar on in the office and there's lots of fun activities that happen all the time. I think number I think narrative two would be getting really good work done and being part of teams doing really amazing kind of things and getting stuff done together. And I think narrative three might be around let's just call it well being in a general sense and very offering various kind of initiatives and practices that help people live a more holistic life and have various kind of wellbeing initiatives happening. So I think they're the kind of three prongs of activity what we, that we would focus on. How does requiring people to work physically in the office affect your talent pool, given that you can probably only recruit or get in people who can live within the commuting dif- distance of um, your offices? We, we've, had, we've got one person who's been going to and from Indonesia for the last three years because they're in a relationship there and spend more time there than they do in the office. We've got other people who have moved down to Tasmania and work remotely from Tasmania. We've got somebody working remotely from Queensland at the moment for a couple of years. I'm just talking about the general vibe is getting people back to the office when they can. There's If there's personal situations where people need to be somewhere else, then they can. that's the benefit. They can work from somewhere else. But And so what I'm saying is get back to the office if you can. If you can't, if personal situations dictate it for whatever reason, 
then and you have to work from home, then work from home. But my job and our job as leaders of a business is to make it as compelling as possible to come into the office as much as you can. Given that up to 70% of millennials have said that they would rather quit than stop working from home, and I'm not saying that you're forcing everyone back, and given that the work from home flexible work genie is kind of out of the bottle and it seems like it's a bit tricky to put that cork back in, what kind of competitive distinction or advantage might companies like yours who want people to come back into the office and are enticing people to come back into the office in comparison to companies that might be embracing the remote or work from home or hybrid workplace model? If you said to me, do I want to have a endless supply of Mars bars in my kitchen? I would say yes. That may not necessarily be the best thing for me to ha- to have. So just because people say they want it doesn't necessarily mean that it should be delivered on. That's the first point. I reckon the competitive advantage we would have is a really strong brand in our industry. And I think a strong brand is built largely out of having a strong culture who are all working around a strong unified vision. And I think that's easier to achieve when people are working within proximity to each other a lot of the time. So I think it's a self-sustaining thing. People like it. It's enjoyable. It's fun. And the more that people come together to do it, then the better, the stronger our brand is. It's, it's interesting, the Mars bar analogy, because I've often used that in relation to working from home or flexible work hours. The example I used was exactly the same. Like I found, I've found with my kids, right, if I ever said to them, here's all the Mars bars, they're in this jar, and I'm going to put them on the top cupboard and you can only have one a day, by, within two or three days, the Mars bar jar would be suspiciously low. Whereas if I said, here's all the Mars bars you want on a plate in the middle of the table, don't eat all of them, but take as many as you like, you'd often find that the Mars bars would sit there because instead of being forbidden fruit... They were something that we knew they were there, so we had the security of knowing that we didn't need to eat all of them in one go. Nah. Have you heard of TikTok? Yes, my children talk about it all the time, but I have no idea what it's about. No, yeah, but I reckon they might be spending too long on TikTok. So if you think about things like variable positive reinforcement and addictive behaviours and so forth, we... Even though we know it's wrong, it's sometimes very hard to avoid, or even though we know it's harmful, sometimes there's certain behaviours that are very hard to avoid. And sometimes this comes back to this whole kind of concept of comfort. If I can lie on my, if I can lie on my bed all day, every day, and get everything done from my bedroom, get all of my food delivered to me, get all of my work done from, getting, from staying in bed, get all of my sexual needs satisfied through various websites and so on, and I don't need to leave my bed at all to get everything I need done. Is that a good way to live my life? I just want to know, do you wash yourself with a rag on a stick? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I do it. I, don't, I only did it for about a month. And, uh, <laughs> but what a month it was. We just get scared that just because it's easy doesn't mean it's right. I have to say, I'm not sure that it's necessarily easy because, uh, again, there have been a number of reports or surveys that suggest that, uh, 
Gen Z are actually working harder and often out of hours, just not necessarily in the office. How did you, have you done a survey at Thinkabell and asked your staff where and when or how they'd like to work and how did they respond? I'm not the only, so there's there's a few different differing points of view on surveys and asking people's opinion. I, in the agency, and so we do surveys a lot and we do listen to people and we do try to, and we do take feedback and then we try to also take a leadership position with that feedback in mind as well. So it does come back, I reckon you're right, I reckon if you ask everyone how many days a week they want to spend in the office, let's just say it's one day a week, then I think the natural, the natural, the leaders of the agency would probably want that to be, let's say, five. And then I think the answer is going to be in between those two things. So I think there's a tension there and you just have to, as I said before, make it as compelling as possible and give as many reasons as possible to have people in the office as much as possible. This is The Next Shift with me, Sunil Badami, on Disrupt Radio with author, consumer psychologist, board game designer and Enterprise Breakfast co-host Adam Ferrier who reckons we should all get back to the office and he's going to tell us how he's gotten his Thinkerbell team back into work. So how have you found your own enticement back to the office efforts working with the Thinkerbell team? I reckon we've got a pretty good sense of collective responsibility within our agency. And so I think everyone feels a sense of responsibility to come in as much as they possibly can. And so we're very happy with how often people are in the office at the moment. And hopefully the people who work at Thinkerbell are happy with how often they come into the office as well. If they're not, if it's out of whack and they're not feeling fulfilled or whatever, then they'll leave and go and do something else. Look, it's such an emotive issue at the moment, especially on both sides, both for bosses and for workers. And especially if you've been looking at the chat rooms around the Commonwealth Bank with people talking about Matt Coman's recent call for them to come back into the office. Nowhere near Elon Musk levels of arseholery, just three days a week, people were pretty exercised about it. And it seems that when they read your articles on, Umbre- on Umbrella, they felt the same way. Why do you think there was such a backlash to your articles on Umbrella about going back to the office? I think that I think two reasons. Number one, of course the bloody owner of the business is going to say get back into the office. So you're coming from a pretty neutered perspective and it's a bit... It's like Elon Musk on a bigger scale saying get back to the office. It's just pretty crass for to say it. But I believe it's in everyone's interest, not just for the I sincerely believe it's in everyone's interest to try to go into the office. So I'm I hope I'm not saying it just from that perspective, but it's easy to take pot shots at, a, at an agency leader who says that, number one. The other thing I think is a little bit more scary is it takes away people's sense of agency. So it's somebody saying to somebody else, this is what you should do. And if that was, and when I hear those messages, my natural predication is to say, stuff you, I'll, I'll do what I want. And so, the, so if you say, get back to the office three days a week and you do nothing to make it more enticing or more engaging to do that, then you're a mug. And so the onus is on the leaders of a business not to say, you get back to the office, but it's saying, hey, at the office, this and this and this happens. At home, this happens. So we would like you to come back as much as possible for these particular reasons and make sure you have reasons to say. 
Adam Ferrier, thanks so much for joining us on The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. And I'll look forward to hearing you again next Wednesday and Thursday on Enterprise Breakfast with the wonderful Libby Gore on Disrupt Radio. God bless you. It's been fun. Thanks a lot. Well, if threats won't work, and let's face it, even without new amendments to the Fair Work Act, which allow workers to refuse being forced back into the office, they never do. So how can bosses get people to come back in? After the break, we'll hear from someone who's written a handy guide for bosses who want to do just that. Stick around and find out what he reckons works on the next shift on Disrupt with me, Sunil Badami. Disrupt Radio. With so many bosses wanting staff back at their desks, how can they encourage them to get back in? And why do they want to in the first place? Our next guest is a regular columnist for the New Daily and The Australian and one of the world's top social media influencers, reaching over 40 million people a month. With degrees in human and urban geography from leading universities in Germany and Australia, Simon Kustenmacher co-founded the Demographics Group with renowned futurist and commentator Bernard Salt, which provides specialist advice on demographics, consumers and social trends. And he's just written a guide for bosses wanting their staff back at their desks with some important questions to consider before they do. Welcome to the next shift on Disrupt Radio, Simon Kustemacher. Oh, it's good to be on. (laughs) There's been a lot of bosses and managers in the news lately, from Elon Musk to CBA CEO Matt Coleman and everyone in between, basically saying people need to get back into the office. Why do you think that is? The standard arguments why bosses want people back in the office are around productivity. They say workers work better, more efficiently from home. They say it's better for company culture. It's really hard to create a company culture when you all sit in your own their bedrooms, and it is for knowledge transfer, making sure that the knowledge from the senior staff gets uh, somehow transferred into the brains of the junior staff, which is much easier done if everyone is in the same office and you have all those little opportunities to talk about problems, and then staff gets smarter, the young staff. These would be the main arguments. Um, if you look at the data around productivity, which is, of course, incredibly hard to measure productivity in the first place, nothing points to the fact that you are much more productive at the office. Quite the opposite. There's plenty of research out there showing that it's not a perfect measure, but at least you work longer when you work from home. Um, the time that we win uh, back uh, in the day when we don't commute, we tend to give 40% of that time to the employer. So we spend more time on our problems on our jobs, working from home, that's pretty cool. So that's probably not the main argument for activity, even though it is tends to be used that way. Company culture is definitely incredibly hard to create when you are all working remotely. But it's not an argument to say everybody should be in the office five days a week. There's research out there, which, I, which shocked me when I first saw it, that said that you need to spend whether you spend one day in the office or five days, it has the same effect on a sense of team cohesion, which is quite dramatic when you think about it. But then I remembered I played social sports for years, and I considered those people that I spent with, spent an hour or two a week with as my dear friends. 
So a day in the office is probably enough to create a sense of belonging, a sense of cultural fit. So that will probably do the trick. The real challenge why people should go back to the office is probably knowledge transfer. If you are a new graduate and you work in an office full of people, the opportunities or questions that you can ask, left, right, and center is endless. You probably ask something like, I'm making this up, 50 questions a day. You still ask questions when you work remotely because you will have assigned a buddy, you'll have a manager, but you probably ask not even half that number of questions. You'll ask fewer questions. So that means from a boss, from a manager perspective, you need to create purposeful opportunities for knowledge transfer. You need to formalize an activity, knowledge transfer, that happened organically in the past. So expect much more formal learning days, expect more learning programs. This can be done online theoretically as well. So all of those things need to increase. That's probably the best argument to get people back into the office. But I'm also urging bosses when they say they want staff back in the office to have a very honest self-assessment before they think about any policy. Do I just want my staff back in the office because of a bit of a thirst for power? Is it just a power thing? Do I just really the control or at least the illusion of control that I have when all my staff are in the office? Is there just a personal dislike of working from home? We know that working from home and working in the office falls to a certain degree onto a spectrum. They're called integrators or separators. Some people are very happy to blend work and personal life. This is me, for example. I don't mind working from home and then spending half an hour with my kid, then working again, constantly being interrupted, disrupted, working late at night. That's fine by me. My wife is the exact opposite. She is a, a separator. She wants work life and private life desperately or very cleanly separated. She hates working from home. If you're a boss who is like my wife, maybe you should just check your intentions. This is just a personal dislike. And of course, some old folks, some old veteran leaders might just say, I worked in the office for 30 years and I never complained. So what do all those young snowflakes complain about? The simplest of asks of coming to the office. I want you to check that your intentions are pure when you ask that back into the office, that you're actually concerned about knowledge transfer, culture or productivity. If you have data that proves that in your organization, staff is actually less productive at home, your gut feeling does not count because there are so many macro factors driving productivity and economic outcomes down at the moment. So once you have all of this sorted, I'm urging bosses to very closely understand why their staff wants to work at home. You need to fully understand your people because after all, your company website says that you put your people first. So you want to understand the cost factor. How much does it cost your staff member to come to the office? compared to working from home. A lunch is cheaper at home. Commute is for free when you work from home and so forth. Think this through. Your wardrobe, if you work from home more often, needs, uh, you get away with a smaller wardrobe. That's uh, beneficial. If you run a family, maybe logistics are just simpler when you work from home. Also the time. Your staff loses quite a bit of time commuting. So what can you do about this? The attitude of towards work, of course, changed, especially when you look at young workers. Some of those young workers will not have the same attitude towards work, putting the same importance into a job as you might have. And of course, there is the pay issue. 
It sounds harsh because you are very much paying market rates for your staff, probably, but you're not paying them enough for them to have a decent life because of the rising cost of living pressure. So they say, hey, even if I put in this absolute bucket load of work to get a bit of a promotion for a few more thousand dollars, it doesn't actually move the needle towards housing affordability being being easy. It's um, true, isn't it? 70% of workers who were recently surveyed, I think by the NAB, said that they would rather take a pay cut or quit than return to the office. Yes, and that speaks to the general sentiment that people have. Those surveys are, of course, always taken to be taken with a grain of salt, simply because this is what people say. When rubber hits the road and you're actually forced back into the office, then you will see how many people quit, how many people jump ship to a different colored bank, so to speak. But overall, the trend is there. We see people making really honest claims that they rather work from home or that they're not considering companies that do not offer flexible work arrangements. You're on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami, and we're with the stats guy, Simon Kustemacher of the Demography Group, asking why bosses and managers might want you back in the office and things you should consider as a boss or manager before you do call everyone back in. But we've been working. We've been working from home for nearly two, three years now. It feels like the working from home genie is out of the bottle. What would you say to employers or organisations who are trying to go back to the way we used to work? Is it ever going to really happen again? I like to comparing the working from home issue with the US gun lobby. Once a right has been granted to bear arms, to work from home. It is incredibly difficult to wrestle that right back, no matter what it is. So I'd say it's probably a terrible idea to force people back into the office, particularly because you're operating in an environment of a prolonged skills shortage. Remember that the skills shortage is baked into the system. Even in a high migration scenario, the skills shortage will persist for the next decade simply because you continue to have this big baby boomer cohort retiring while only a small cohort enters the workforce at the other end of the market. And the biggest cohort of them all, millennials, they keep making babies for another 13 years or so, meaning they at least temporarily leave the workforce. So the skills shortage is here to stay. It's not really the right time for bosses to force staff to do something that they don't want. You should then, by definition, drive down retention rates, New hires will be charging higher fees, so you'll be hurting your bottom line significantly if you can find the staff. So it's probably not a great idea financially, even though you might feel the desire. I know that there's plenty of issues around accounting because you want to make use of this expensive office that you lease and you want to make sure sure that you have enough control. You think that you create more creativity, but ultimately this means that the middle management of Australia will have a more difficult time because they need more complex work ahead because they need to ensure that their staff collaborates digitally and you at the very least need to coordinate calendars so that when people are in the office, you make sure that essentially your whole team, not the whole organization, but your whole relatively small team is in the office together and not just for the sake of being in the office, but you align work days, work weeks in a way that people come into the office to do the interpersonal, the collaborative task together. You want to make the commute worth the while. If you go to the office and you see your workers 
sitting at their workstations with noise-canceling headphones writing emails, you know that you failed them. There's no reason that they needed to commute into the office to do that task. That's dumb. You want to make sure that people go to the office because the office is actually the best place to do that work. Yes, you always need an office for those workers who want to come to the office, but you need to and the commute, if you will. But a lot of talent managers and thought leaders are saying, oh, you've got to kind of co-design roles and work with the people that do that work or those roles. But many employers and managers would say it's already hard enough trying to coordinate what people do, where they do it, how they do it, when they do it, in different places at different hours. So what would your advice be on managing this? And how do you do that at the Demographics Group? So at the Demographics Group, we are a fully remote business. We're only five staff. We're a small company. We're fully remote. We don't have an office. We meet once a month in a cafe. That's about it. That's enough for us. But that's also because we are not growing. At the moment, we are a team that has been together for for years and we are very scared and we've been procrastinating, to be honest, on taking on a new staff member, which we need because we go, oh, we need to find an office. We need to do right by this staff worker because if it's a young worker in particular, you want to skill them up and that is best done in person. It's incredibly hard to do this remotely and young people are the ones that benefit the most from being in the office. From a personal career perspective, if roughly speaking, if you're in your 20s, if you are before the family formation stage, spend as much time in the office as you can. Uh, learn as much as you can from the older workers. It's the easiest way of soaking up knowledge. But particularly once you have families, the motivation goes down. And we're also seeing this geographical element there that once um, Australian start families, they leave the inner city hipster suburbs behind and they move to the outer fringe. So meaning they essentially quadruple their commutes in length. Uh, so that, of course, drives the motivation to go to the office to a new loan. But many companies have regional offices or branches away from HQ. I guess the question is, given that, say, for example, a lot of organisations will say, you've got to come into the CBD, wherever your city is, from your urban fringe or out of the hipster suburbs, Is there a possible solution in terms of if the mountain won't come to Muhammad, Muhammad will go to the mountain in that at least, or the other way around, maybe the office can go to where most of its staff are living? What we're predicting very much is the working near home movement. And so this doesn't mean that every small player needs to have multiple offices, but I'm seeing the absolute rise of not necessarily just co-working spaces, but co-offices where you are just renting rooms, private rooms, um, relatively small office space on a short-term basis, just to make sure that your staff has a shorter commute. If you think about this from a family logistics point, you drop off the kid the childcare, you go to the, the working near home place within 20 minutes. This is a short trip. You then work from that location until you need to pick up the kid. And then if need be, you answer a couple of emails at home. That is the, that is the scenario that works for workers. So I'd want to, I would want to encourage organizations to take those models at least into consideration to trial all of those. At the moment, this might be a bit of a big ask because plenty of organizations still sit on very expensive inner city leases that they need to pay down. And the idea to pay for additional office space on the urban fringe doesn't look all that inviting. Musk recently came out and said 
among other things, that working from home was immoral, given that only some workers get to do it, many others, whether it's people working in factories or delivery or logistics or even doctors or childcare workers or firemen have to turn up to work. What do you say to that in terms of returning to work on a moral basis? Yeah, I don't see the moral issue there because the life of the factory worker is impacted whether an office worker works from home, works near home or works in the office. And there's no negative effect on the other people other than potentially envy. But the envy is probably uh, always occurring in the human condition and it will usually be targeting levels of wealth rather than working arrangements. What about the effect of workers not coming into the CBD or into offices on, say, property managers or people who own or run cafes or pubs or businesses close to where traditionally lots of people would come? Absolutely. So that is a shift in geography of where people spend their day. We call this daytime population. So daytime population shift and people that saw the previous peaks, these are cafe owners, retail operators in the city center, the office leaseholders in the inner, the landlords of the offices in the inner city, they are suffering from that. They are not benefiting. Local suburban cafes, they benefit because if you go for a walk, you might grab your coffee there. So there is a shift of geographic spending that, that occurs that is unavoidable. These are pains. The markets should react by this by driving leases in the inner city down a bit. Costs should be going down. That's, this is why this is called property investment, because it is an investment. There's a level of uncertainty. That said, should you just board up all the office towers and retail outlets in the inner city? Absolutely not. The inner city will be ultimately just fine, but it will take a bit. We are growing Melbourne, for example, at 120,000 people per year, every year. And even if a much smaller share of those 120,000 people now works in the inner city on any given day, sooner or later, we will reach pre-pandemic levels. I can say this because I don't own billions worth of dollars of office towers, but that shift that is there, that's a structural shift, it's a structural pain point for everyone involved in those inner city businesses. I don't have positive news for them, other than potentially to just look out for the next wave of migration. This year and the next year, financially as it is, we'll see record high migration intake. Those migrants tend to be, 82% of them are between 18 and 39 years of age. That means those people are, migrants are almost exclusively singles or couples rather than families, and they will move as close as possible to the single address that they know in Australia. That's either their office tower or the university. They will all move into the inner city. So the inner city sees the population surge, over the next uh, over the next years, next five years, essentially, this growth is guaranteed. So things will look up. Will they look like pre-pandemic soon? Probably not. So you wrote a guide for bosses wanting their staff to return to the office in the New Daily recently. What are your tips or advice to bosses wanting to get everyone back in the office and how can they do it in a way that isn't going to result in, say, necessarily any breaches or litigation as a result of changes to the Fair Work Act this year? Yeah, I, I'd be advising against forcing stuff with a dumb approach of just saying three, four, five days in the office, no matter what, nothing is gained by that. You're just forcing people to be there. That is, you're not talking to your staff as if they were adults. That's not smart. So I'd rather advise them to think about work first. And what kind of work tasks 
that your team needs to be doing are best done in person. And then you need to organize your team to be in the office for these tasks together as a team. This is a bit like herding cats. To be honest, is going to be needing much more uh, active calendar management, but that's the fair way of getting people into it. Also, you might want to consider removing hurdles. Once you truly understand the hurdle of going into the office, how much does it cost your staff member each day to go to the office? Think about, don't think about this from your organizational perspective. Honestly, do the maths. Commuting dollars, whether this is car parking, whether this is public transport, lunch, average lunch costs, that's probably it. And you could potentially put a time, a cost on the time that this been commuted. Have a real dollar value associated with the, with the daily commute of each of your workers. And then you understand what you're asking. So that is absolutely crucial. And you could then decide whether you want to provide carrots, whether you want to make sure that you take away those pains by paying for public transport tickets, parking fees, providing meals, creating team lunches. So you could get two birds with one stone, providing team lunches in-house. Essentially, you have this social opportunity across a lunch, all the while opportunities for this casual learning to occur. Do the maths, whether it works for you or not. The absolute biggest worker that is guaranteed to get the biggest staff cohort that you have back into the office would be providing free champion. Um, theoretically, if you're a large enough employer, you should have plenty of empty office space to be, you know, rip out whatever you have and put in childcare offerings. There. I'm quite serious. If you're a big player, you could offer this. And then your staff will come to the office with their kids and tow um, because there is an absolute shortage of, of childcare and it is outrageously expensive. Less we moved to universal free childcare, which some states are now honestly considering, not necessarily for the higher income workers if you have white collar workers. Uh, that we're talking about here. But these are the goodies, the carrots that you can offer, and they would work. And you could do this then without your staff being resentful. Do you want to make sure that your most valuable asset as an organization is resentful? Because quite honest, if you, let's say you are a bank, there are plenty of other banks with different colors, logos, who would offer potentially the same job, potentially at a higher rate to your workers. They can just easily switch. And I don't think loyalty towards your organization, don't overestimate that. There was a bit of a loyalty bonus that organizations had in the aftermath of COVID because people felt like we all lived through this together, but that is also now rapidly fading away. So staff retention in an environment of a skills shortage, a prolonged skills shortage, should probably be your first concern rather than just getting people into the office for the sake of having them under your watchful eye. I can't wait to hear those discussions about whose corner office becomes the creche (laughs) or where we put the buffet. Thank you so much for your time, Simon. It's been great to chat to you. It's been a pleasure. Always happy to chat. Well, there'll always be challenges in managing any workforce, but perhaps the best way to get people back into the office is to give them good reasons to want to come back because forcing them will just get them to leave. And in a very tight talent market, especially in the kinds of knowledge and service industries that need the best and brightest, can you afford to lose them to your rivals who offer flexible or remote work options? With that, it's time to clock off this shift. 
Thanks to Thinkerbell's Adam Ferrier, whom you can catch on Enterprise Breakfast with Libby Gore on Disrupt Radio on Wednesdays and Thursday mornings. And the stats guy, Simon Kustenmacher, who you can read in the New Daily in the Australian. And you can read Adam and Simon's thoughts on going back to the office at Mumbrella and the New Daily or just go to our program page at Disrupt Radio. We will put the links up. So what do you reckon? Do we work better together in the office? Or is the commute not really worth it? Would you rather quit than go back? Or are you dying for a chat round the water cooler again? Let us know on our socials on Facebook, Twitter, Insta and, of course, LinkedIn. This is Disrupt Radio and I'm Sunil Badami. See you next time for The Next Shift. Jeff Bezos, Ariana Huffington and Phil Knight are three of the world's most successful business people. What are their secrets? What were they like growing up and what's it like to work with them? Global Disruptors with me, Rob Middle, is the podcast that gives you the backstory of the world's most successful people. Rod Little unlocks the struggles and success stories of some of the world's best-known entrepreneurs with Global Disruptors, the riveting radio series that delves deep into the world of extraordinary entrepreneurs. Global Disruptors explores the exceptional lives of the trailblazers who dared to defy the odds and rewrite the rules of the business world. What sets these mavericks apart? What secret source fuels their unwavering determination and grit? How do they keep their eyes on the prize, ignoring distractions and overcoming the toughest obstacles? Global Disruptors isn't just about the stories. We'll blend thoughtful analysis with moments of lighthearted humour to bring you the full inside scoop on these remarkable entrepreneurs. Their triumphs, their struggles and their indomitable spirit that propels them forward. Rod Little unlocks the struggles and success stories of some of the world's best-known entrepreneurs with global disruptors. Only on Disrupt Radio.